Hey, thank you for joining me and my guest, Dorothy Isaacs. And we have a wonderful show today for you. But before we begin speaking with Dorothy, I'd like to give you a quote. And the quote today is from Chris Gardner. He's an American businessman, motivational speaker, and author of the book, The Pursuit of Happiness, which was also turned into a movie. And here is the quote, strong people stand up for themselves, stronger people stand up for others. And that really hit me because I find that my guest today, Dorothy Isaacs, is really a very strong person. And she's here today to tell us her stories of hope. She has at least two she's going to share with us. I have always been passionate about the importance of reading in a child's life and how that opens up so many opportunities for a child to succeed. That passion led me to establish a nonprofit foundation as the Stars of the Sky Foundation to promote childhood literacy and to help our communities understand how important literacy is for a child to have a successful life. I write a new blog post every Monday, and my posts are on all sorts of topics about children and families because I want to assist and inform busy parents. Please visit the website as the starsofthesky.org to read my blog post. If you're looking for the best gifts for children, my children's books make wonderful gifts. You can purchase them on the website as well. Thank you. Hi, welcome, Dorothy. Thank you so much for joining me today and the listening audience. Tell us about your background. You have a fascinating background. Well, I was born in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. My mother's family has been in the West Indies or Caribbean for many generations. My great-grandfather on my mother's side was born in Barbados. And my great-great-grandmother was born right here in St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. So on my mom's side, my Caribbean roots go back very far. My dad was a statesider born in Seattle, Washington, uh-huh. of New Jerseyites. So here I am. Where did they meet? Um, they met right here in St. Thomas through a mutual friend from St. Croix. Yes. My grandparents had moved to St. Thomas and bought a small hotel, 1829. Mm-hmm. And that was very close to where my mom was living and friends of my dad from St. Croix introduced them. Mm-hmm. And in about a year later, they were married. That's wonderful. And what about you have a fascinating Jewish ancestry? Yes, my mother's mother's side were Sephardic Jews that left Spain and Portugal at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, went to the Netherlands, and they migrated down to Curacao way back in the early 1700s, I believe. And eventually, that is the line of my family that ended up in St. Thomas back in around 1796, when our congregation here was established. My mom's dad's family were Episcopalian missionaries, believe it or not, and were in the British colonies, as they called it at the time. They were Anglicans, I guess, in those days. Mm -hmm. And then my dad was an Irish Catholic. Mm -hmm. So I have a little of everything in me, but I was raised in the Jewish faith and continue to be involved in our synagogue here in St. Thomas. 
Yes, and I understand that with the Jewish faith, the mothers pay a very influential role in raising the children in that faith. Traditionally in Judaism, if you were born of a Jewish mother, you were Jewish regardless. Mm -hmm. In the reform movement of which I am an advocate, whether it's mother or father now, if either of your parents is Jewish, you are considered Jewish. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, the mother was the more influential in terms of raising the children as Jews. Yes. So you have been a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. You're now retired. Tell us about your schooling. Did you attend school on St. Thomas? Yes, I attended St. Peter and Paul Catholic School from first grade to 12th grade Mm -hmm. and loved the school, have wonderful friends to this day. We've been graduated now almost 53 years. You know, we are still close and we had a big 50th reunion a few years ago and it was wonderful to see everyone. It was as if no time had passed. Yeah, that's always so true. And then you went away to college. Yes, I went to uh, Castleton University in Vermont. I wanted to see the change of seasons and to see snow, and boy, did I see it in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Very wonderful small school, state school. And at the time that I graduated in 1970, I wanted to become an attorney. I had always wanted to be an advocate for people Mm -hmm. and felt I would be good at it because I'm not very easily intimidated by anyone. Mm -hmm. So I applied to law school. And in one interview I had, I was advised that in the middle of the Vietnam War, it was very unfair of women to be seeking to go to law school, taking the place of men who might otherwise have to go to Vietnam and get killed. was very difficult for women until the late 70s, really, to begin to be accepted into medical and law school. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, I got married and had two children. And when my youngest was going to be going to first grade, at that point, my husband and I discussed it, and we agreed that I would apply to law school again. And I was accepted at George Mason University Law School, which was only about 15 minutes from where we lived. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was a state school in Virginia where we lived, and it was affordable. And I got a wonderful education there. George Mason is one of the top 50 law schools in the country, especially being right outside of D.C. We have a lot of influential judges and other people that teach at the school. Mm -hmm. When you were touring law schools, what did you see? I walked into a class that had about 300 or more males, and you could spot two or three females Mm -hmm. in the class. It was very clear at that point that unless you either had some sort of a genius or you had a lot of very influential people backing you, which I had none, you would not really have a chance to get in. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor went through, Mm -hmm. both graduating at the top of their classes, Sandra Day O'Connor from Stanford and 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg from Columbia and having also been at the top of her class at Harvard, could not even get legal jobs when they graduated because law firms were not hiring women. Mm-hmm. You know, that was certainly an indication of where women were considered in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. I remember very early in my career going into the Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court in Fairfax County, the largest jurisdiction in Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia, and setting up at council table and a bailiff telling me that court reporters had to sit over at a different table. And I had to inform (laughs) him that I was the attorney, not the court reporter. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Interesting, interesting story. Yes. And it seems as if when women graduated from law school, that's where they tended to put us into the juvenile, representing juveniles and into the family issues. It took a while for them to understand that we women were multifaceted. We can represent all kinds of issues, not just issues dealing with children and with families. Exactly. (laughs) In my practice, I did criminal law, bankruptcy law, represented people in business disputes, did a lot of family law, representing parents who were accused of child abuse, where I felt that it was not warranted, did the gamut of law across the board, particularly Mm -hmm. where litigation was concerned. Yes. Well, you graduated in 1970, and then 15 years later, you applied for law school. Even though your heart was to go to law school when you graduated in 1970, that's 15 years. So what gave you the hope that you would indeed be able to go to law school and then become a lawyer? Well, In the meantime, when I came back to St. Thomas in 1970, I was hired as the rent control administrator for the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. And in that capacity, I conducted rent hearings and determined whether or not rent could be raised. Mm -hmm. And I had to fly to St. Croix and be here in St. Thomas to conduct these inspections and hearings and read the law and try to interpret it as far as the tenants were concerned and the landlords Mm -hmm. and realize that I had a real capacity, not just because I wanted to be a lawyer, but in terms of actually practicing in that role where lawyers came before me as the rent control administrator. It even encouraged my interest in the law further. So as I said, my husband and I met here in St. Thomas, actually in the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, which is Jewish New Year. And we got married six months later. Mm -hmm. And being that I wanted to go to law school, he was able to secure a job with the federal government at HUD, H-U-D, Housing and Urban Development. Mm -hmm. So we moved to D.C. with intention of me again applying for law school. Yes. But then I became pregnant with our first daughter Mm -hmm. and got involved in her upbringing. I was a stay-at-home mom. Once she started school, I was PTA president two or three different times. And then we had our second daughter four years later. And I decided that until our youngest child was in first grade in school full-time, that I wouldn't 
either take a job or go to school full time because I wanted to really raise them to that point, which I did. Yes. So in 1985, when Beth, my youngest, started first grade, Mm -hmm. actually, I started the minute that she went to first grade. So in 1984, (laughs) I started looking into it and was admitted to George Mason University Law School, which is now, to my regret, the Antonin Scalia School of Law. (laughs) goes against some of my um, more liberal bent. Yes. But just loved being in law school. None of my classmates loved it as much as I did, I don't think. Yes. Undergrad, I was probably more conservative than most because I was in Vermont. In law school, I was probably the most liberal of the classmates, or at least among the most liberal. Mm -hmm. We had a very active Federalist Society, and uh, I was elected to be governor of the Fourth Circuit Bar Association, American Bar Association Law Student Division Mm -hmm. for the Fourth Circuit. Yes, you've had a very trailblazing career, and we've talked about some cases that you represented even indigent people who couldn't afford legal services, and you were very successful representing them. What I would like you to do is to tell us about the Velasquez case, because that one was uh, written up in Reader's Digest in 2007. And when I read the article, it just brought tears to my eyes. Uh, You did an amazing job, and that's the case where parents were charged with child abuse. So why don't you tell us how you became involved and some of the things that happened in that case? Sure. Alice and Miguel Velasquez were very young parents. Alice was in the military and she was a paramedic in the military. And Miguel Velasquez was an immigrant from El Salvador. And they had a baby of four months old that they took to Bethesda Naval Hospital at that time for a well baby checkup. And the baby, Liliana, was four months old and she seemed very healthy. But Alice had noticed some bumps on her chest and brought it to the doctor's attention. He didn't seem to feel there was any need to do any follow up, but she insisted and x rays were done that showed that Liliana had several broken ribs in varying stages of healing. Immediately, attention was placed on Miguel, as he really was her primary caretaker. Alice being in the military, Miguel would take care of Liliana, and then on weekends and in the evenings, he laid carpet as a job to make money. Miguel's English was not great at the time, and it was felt that his lack of emotion when they explained that Liliana had these broken ribs and Alice fell to the floor in sobs, and Miguel was sort of perplexed that he must be the guilty person with absolutely no indication that either of them had done anything to the baby. Normally, babies with abuse will show retinal hemorrhaging, bruises, other indicia of 
abuse. And in Liliana's case, there was absolutely no indication that she was anything but a very well cared for baby, healthy, clean, gaining weight appropriately, and so forth. So she was then sent to Walter Reed Army Hospital in DC because there was not a pediatric unit at Bethesda. And when they got to Walter Reed, Miguel was arrested and charged with felony child abuse. This would have and been it, around what year? This was in 1999, okay. 2000. Yes, yes. So Alice was told that they were taking the baby away because she was making excuses for her husband. Alice's grandmother had had very severe osteoporosis, and Alice herself, as a child, had suffered broken bones with little or no trauma, like riding a bike, she got a broken foot, and one time walking downstairs. So she tried to get them to test Liliana to see if she had anything that would indicate bone fragility and she was accused of making excuses for her husband. Mm -hmm. And the test was not done. In the meantime, Miguel was given a public defender who, for his trial in the criminal case, and she requested and the court granted that Liliana would be tested for osteogenesis imperfecta, which is better known as brittle bone disease. Mm -hmm. And a skin biopsy was done and sent out to the University of Washington to determine whether or not she had this condition. And it came back positive. It took several weeks for the diagnosis to be made. But even when that came back, the doctors at Bethesda and Walter Reed continued to insist that Liliana suffered abuse and it wasn't from having brittle bone disease. I hired a pediatric geneticist from Children's Hospital in D.C., Dr. Rosenblum, Kenneth Rosenblum, and he is a nationally renowned expert on osteogenesis imperfecta, and he testified that once a child is diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta, which is we call OI, you cannot say that she has been abused, mm -hmm. that a child with OI can be in a car accident and suffer no broken bones, but they can be walking across a room and suffer a broken bone. It's just the way in which the constitution of the bone and the collagen that they have make up the bone that mm -hmm. could determine whether or not they would get a broken bone. How did you get involved in the case? Soon after that, once the OI came back, the judge threw out the criminal case against Miguel. Mm -hmm. But social services was still threatening to terminate the parental rights and put Liliana up for adoption. Mm -hmm. At that point, someone referred the parents to me. Yes. They had gone to see several lawyers who would not take their case, mm -hmm. but they came to me. And I heard the story and I agreed to take the case. Mm -hmm. At that point, 
They had no income. They were being supported by their church. So I took on the case in order to try to get Liliana back. She had been out of her home for well over a year at that point. So I went into court with all my experts and what have you, and we were able to convince the judge to return Liliana to the parents. And how long did that take? That took me about four or five months Mm -hmm. to actually get into court with the evidence and have the judge return her. But still, administratively, they were still on the registry of child abusers. Miguel was on the registry of child abusers and Alice as a negligent parent for allowing this to happen to her. And what about Miguel's immigration status? Well, I was just going to say, Miguel being from El Salvador was in the process of getting his green card or permanent residency when all of this occurred. And if there's any hint of abuse or criminality, you're not going to get your citizenship. You're not going to get a green card. So not only did we have the impact of them possibly losing their child, but we had the probability that Miguel would be deported. Mm -hmm. So I had to prevail on that case. And we had a trial in Alexandria on the issue of whether or not they were abusive parents. Mm -hmm. We lost that case in the administrative hearing after a full day with many witnesses, including Miguel's ex-wife, who (laughs) testified what a great parent he was to their daughter who had had a heart problem. Mm -hmm. In my 30 years of practicing law, I had never had an ex-spouse come in in support of his former spouse. Yes. So then we appealed that to the circuit court for the city of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And the judge overruled us again. Oh, my goodness. So uh-huh. I appealed it to again? the uh-huh. Court of Appeals of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it took them a year, mm-hmm. literally a year to come back with a finding that Miguel had not abused Liliana, and they threw out the finding of abuse and removed his name from the child abuse registry. In the meantime, we had sued the federal government Mm -hmm. for medical negligence in insisting that Miguel and Alice had been guilty of abuse and neglect. And we were waiting and waiting for this ruling to come back because obviously if he was, they were still on the registry of child abusers in Virginia, it wasn't going to be very good for the civil case. Yes, yes. But fortunately, that case came back and positive for us. And after three days of trial, the U.S. attorneys for the Eastern District of Maryland, where the case was, offered to settle the case, and we were able to settle it for $950,000. And how long did that process take? That process took several years because it was in 2005 that we finally 
got that case settled. And also the administrative finding from the Court of Appeals Mm -hmm. that threw out the abuse finding. Yes. So all in all, it took us about five years. Yes. To, you know, get Liliana back, Mm -hmm. get the finding of abuse and neglect overturned Mm -hmm. and get the federal case settled. Yes. And as you probably know, as an attorney yourself and a former judge, suing the federal government is never easy. No. And it took everything we had to be able to get that case resolved. I had a co-counsel on that case because I was not licensed in Maryland. Uh And my good friend, Patricia Smith, was Maryland counsel with me on that case. Yes. Now we're coming to the close of the show. And the Reader's Digest article had a quote from you, which I'm going to say right now. I believe that there are a few things I was put on the planet to do. I came to feel getting Liliana back and clearing Miguel's name were on that list. So we have less than a minute left, Dorothy. What, what are your feelings about that quote? Do you still feel the same way? Yes, I do, but I've expanded it because subsequent to that case, I have had other cases that were equally difficult and equally heart-wrenching that I was able to successfully resolve on the part of my clients. So all in all, I feel that whatever God wanted me to do as a practicing lawyer, I think I fulfilled that wish. And as a lawyer, you represented your clients zealously and tenaciously. You didn't give up. That's clear to me. And that's what the Velasquez's needed and the others that you, you mentioned you represented So it's wonderful to know that you are, and I continue to say this, a legal trailblazer because it's often hard even nowadays to find a lawyer who will just have that stick-to-itness. And you didn't do it for money because you said they they weren't able to pay you initially. Right. We took it on a wing and a prayer. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dorothy. It's been wonderful talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Yes. And have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on my show, Be Convinced, as we share with you life-changing stories of hope. As you wake up each morning, consider the impactful words of American poet Maya Angelou. This is a wonderful day. I have never seen this one before. Please visit my website at sorayadiasikofelt.com, where you will be able to read more about me and access my podcasts, which are all designed to give you a big dose of hope in just 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you.